Been looking forward to this passage. Uh, I, I enjoy every opportunity I get to, uh, to share and to open up God's word with you. And every time, right, there, the reality of God's word comes home. And so I think that, that's our prayer, right? That that would be true of us, that we'd be yielded to, to what the scriptures have to say of us or to us. So our situation this morning is that we are digging further into chapter 14 of Romans. And Paul is teaching uh, the strong in the church how to relate to the weak, uh, particularly on doctrinal issues, right, where people have differences. And so he outlines what that relationship between the strong and the weak should look like. So in other words, he's describing the, the kingdom qualities that ought to exist, that ought to be true of all of us. Now, the immediate complication that we're faced with is, well, which camp are we in? Well, we're probably all stronger brothers, right? We can agree, no, you know, I don't know. But that's part of the, uh, the challenge of this text is figuring out as it speaks to you, particularly in different issues come to mind, uh, are you the one that Paul would describe as stronger or weaker because he's got something to say to both? The implication then, figuring out where we are, stronger, weaker, it, it forces us to test our motives. Right? So if I've got... Uh, some sort of doctrinal conviction, right? A conscience matter that I feel strongly about. The question is, why? Why is it that I feel strongly about that particular issue? And so to address our motives, my position based on this text is we have to understand the larger purposes of God's kingdom. That's the lens, right? That's the framework. That's the lens by which we test our own motives, Right? We get a sense of why we're convicted, why we hold a particular view that we do. And so I'd ask you to, to listen, right, to internalize the instruction that Paul had for the Roman church, right, with the goal of embracing them here in Ovilla. We've been given timeless principles for how we're to relate to each other, and it's, it's clear, right? We need the Spirit's help. We need the instruction of Scripture to grow, right, for the church to honor its Lord the way that we're called to. And like other areas of Scripture, there's a benefit to be had in obedience. But even more importantly than the benefit we get, God's purpose for the church continues, right, when these truths come home, when it changes the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we defer to one another, right, his purposes in the church continue to move forward, And that's pretty cool that we get to be part of God's purposes advancing, right? Moving forward in his church. So we'll look at these kingdom qualities in in three parts, right? We're going to start with our behavior with each other. We're going to try and figure out, well, how do we look at the role of truth in these doctrinal differences? And then what's the bigger picture, right, that frames it all? Okay, so bear that in mind. We're talking about people in the church. We've all agreed that Christ is our Savior and our Redeemer. He is the King of the church. So within that construct, right, what does our behavior look like? What is the role of truth in navigating these differences? And then what's the bigger picture? So with our behavior, right, we'll start there. If you were uh, with us last week or you watched online, uh, Justin explained uh, from the first part of chapter 14 how it is that we navigate differences of opinion, Right, within the church on non-essential issues, not sin issues, non-essential issues. Paul's shifting here slightly in verse 13 where he says, therefore, stop judging each other right, on these opinions, but make it your goal to avoid setting up a stumbling block for each other. 
Now, again, we know that he's speaking specifically to the church. Romans was written to the church in Rome. But in this exact passage, he actually makes that uh, instruction to brothers and sisters, right? Folks that would name the name of Jesus that we have fellowship with. And when he says, make it your goal to avoid stumbling or to avoid causing damage or avoid harming your brother, uh, the word is really important. Let me do the word study here on damage. Uh, He uses several, so I've named them uh, stumbling blocks, he talks about obstacles. Those are uh, stumbling blocks and obstacles are in verses 13. In verse 15, he refers to distress and destruction, which is a scary word, right, for what we might do to one another. And in verse 20, he uses the term destruction again, and he comes back to stumbling. So several different words to get at this idea of how it is that we may harm each other. The word stumbling, uh, it's the same concept. It's the same term. If you remember, Jesus gave a parable in his uh, ministry. Matthew records it in chapter 7, and he says, if you hear my words, right, as he preaches to the crowds, and you build your life on my words, well, then that's like building your house on the rock. The rain and the wind beat against it, but the house stands because it's got a firm foundation, Jesus says. If you hear the words of Christ and you reject them, he says, like building your house on sand, The rain comes, the wind beats upon it, and the house collapses. The house stumbles. It's the same word. So with that in mind, when Jesus says rejecting my teaching leads to a life of collapse, Paul's using the same term here. He says, don't do that to your brother that caused their faith to collapse. It's serious. It's serious in this particular context that he's talking to them about. So it says, okay, if I'm not supposed to be the rain or the wind, right? If I'm not the one that has the effect of damaging uh, a weaker brother, right? He's speaking to the stronger. Don't do that. That's a sobering statement. So what is it that he's so concerned about, right? If the stakes are that high, what specifically is Paul looking at with this church, right, in Rome? Uh, He's focused on food, right? If you've read this passage or you've read ahead, and so that sounds strange on its surface. Why would food be that big a deal? The, the church in Rome was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so there, there's some theory, some speculation that the church in Rome was founded by Jewish believers who were in Jerusalem when Pentecost came, right? And there the power of the Spirit was displayed and they took the gospel back to Rome. Uh, point being that there, were, uh, there was a Jewish component to the church. Now, it's Rome, there are plenty of folks who are not Jews in Rome. And so you have believers from very different stripes, right? very different backgrounds that have come together to fellowship and to grow in the Lord together. If you were a kosher Jew, food was a big deal. Right? Your whole life, your whole family, your whole culture for thousands of years had very specific rules on what was permitted and what was not. And under the old covenant, your obedience to those rules, particularly to the kosher rules, was wrapped up in a right relationship with God. That's a big deal, right? Now you've heard the gospel, could have been a week ago, it might have been yesterday, right? You've come to Christ, but you've got your whole life, right? And your whole culture wrapped up in this issue of food. It's hard for us to internalize that, right? It feels foreign, but... 
Peter, right? Think about Peter. He had the passage or the experience in Acts that's recorded there where the Lord gave him the vision of food and says, here, Peter, kill and eat. You can have the food. And what does Peter do? He argues with the Lord, right? That, that's a telling reaction. Jesus himself gives you a vision like, ah, I don't know about that, right? That's a strongly held conviction. A little bit later, uh, Paul records, right, in, in his writings, says, I had to confront Peter over this issue, right? He was eating with the Gentiles, and then some Jewish folks walked into the room, and Peter withdrew again. He was so sensitive to that rule, and Paul called him out on it, right? So these are pillars of the faith. Jesus said, I will build my, my church on this rock, right, the confession of Christ. But Peter himself, Paul as well, presumably, was a Jew, devout Jew, has now come to the conviction that food is fine, Right, but these are big deals, right? This is, this is wrapped up historically in people's identity. So imagine the difficulty of giving that up, right? By the grace of God, salvation comes in a moment and he makes us his own. Uh, but I mean, who can identify with habits and thinking that take years to change, right? particularly on something like this? Gentiles, on the other hand, the folks in Rome, they had no scruples necessarily about food before they came to Christ. And guess what? They still don't. It's not that big a deal. So you put these two folks together in the church and you say, you know what? Let's have a potluck. How do you think it's going to go? Now, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but stick with me just for a few minutes here. Um, The younger, newer weaker believer, sincere, right, in this case. But in this, in this instance, holding on to these traditions, he shows up at this meal and somebody of influence in the church said, hey, you know, sit down here and hands him a plate and it's, it's got pork on it. And he sort of sits there and looks at it and, and he's struggling, right? He sort of, he's heard the gospel. He's heard that Christ has fulfilled the law. He even believes Christ for his savior but there's a disconnect and it's hard, right? It's hard to grow, hard to change our habits, hard to change our way of thinking. Now, his well-intentioned friend says, what are you waiting for? This is good stuff. It's all fine, eat. And everybody, you know, at this table, in my example, they're kind of looking, seeing what's he gonna do? And against his better judgment, he eats. He's not convinced of it, but there's pressure. Well-intentioned, maybe, but there's pressure. It's very, very awkward. And that's the problem that Paul is addressing, right? Is this man, in this example, my hypothetical, is now eating and acting, having been severed from his moral foundation, right? He still has this conviction before the Lord, I can't eat this and honor the Lord, but he's been goaded into it. And so you have a break, a break between conscience and conduct, And if you carry that out, right, weeks, months, years, acting completely detached from the gospel truth, as you understand it, right, where you are in your faith journey, that's the path to destruction, right? Living and acting in a way that's completely detached from your moral conviction, right, from your understanding of Scripture. And Paul says that is not the way to build up the conscience, right, to help deepen the faith of a weaker brother. Got to be gentle, We've got to be deferential. Now, we don't have this kind of hang-up, right? We don't have the hang-up on kosher laws 
and very few, if any, I would think of our doctrinal differences within the church, for those of us that believe, would rise to the level of kosher laws that are wrapped up in my identity with Christ, right? With my standing before the Lord. But nonetheless, we do have our differences. And so we'll come back. How do we deal with that? Right? But Paul wants us to understand that your behavior, your well-intentioned behavior of exercising a freedom, if you're the stronger brother, it's not absolute and unconstrained. Right? It matters if you inadvertently do damage to somebody with a weaker conscience. But right, before we go there, trying to figure out, well, how do we relate? What do we do with that? We, got it. we can't just skip over the fact that there is a matter of truth here. Right, so we've looked at our behavior. We need to have regard for the younger brother. But the stronger brother's right. There's nothing wrong with the pork. Again, Jesus said so. And so Paul's instruction to the younger brother, don't damage the conscience. Don't cause him to fall. Don't cause him to stumble. Don't cause him to walk away from the church. Right, if you continue to flaunt and to take sort of an aggressive, assertive tone with a weaker brother... Paul's instruction sort of invites a reaction, right? It invites some pushback to say, Paul, but we're right, right? Food's fine. Jesus said so, the food's fine. And this is one of those places where if you read Paul, it's a little bit frustrating because then Paul agrees with the objection to his own instruction, right? Like, well, how does that work, right? How can you agree, Lord? And he, Paul says this, I am fully persuaded and convinced in Christ there's nothing wrong with food. But for the one who doubts, if he eats, that's sin. Right? So it's a nuanced thing, and we need to look at it from both perspectives, right? from the weaker and from the stronger. Let's start with the stronger. So Paul affirms the truth, yep, food is fine, and he does it with some credibility, right? because he was Jewish, very familiar with the rules. But he says, you have this obligation to your brother in love that comes higher than the truth of the fact that food is fine, right? There is a priority. There is a relationship between your obligation to love your brother than there is to exercise your own conviction that food is fine. The risk of destroying somebody's conscience is higher, right? That's a little bit more important than whether or not you eat in this example, right, that Paul's addressing. And so your role, stronger brothers and sisters, right, is to gently, slowly encourage, strengthen the conscience of younger brothers and sisters, not to do damage to it, right, by insisting on, hey, I'm right. That feels a little tricky, right? That feels a little bit difficult, but that's the call, right? All throughout the Old Testament, particularly Proverbs and Psalms, say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And the fear of the Lord, that's, that's reverence. That's our conscience. That's the reaction and the posture of our hearts and minds to the Lord. And so we have an obligation with one another as we search the scriptures, right? As we learn God's truth to help each other refine our understanding of what God's will is and to grow in that, right? And to strengthen the roots and the convictions in the gospel for folks who are newer to the faith, your obligation to serve in that way to make disciples comes above your personal freedom, right? Even when the freedom is absolutely true and right. Now, Christian freedoms continue to be um, on the table, so to speak, 
right? Paul says a little bit later in verse 22 that the faith that you enjoy, and in this context, he's talking about faith eating food, the faith that you enjoy, do that at home. Keep it between you and the Lord, right? He's not saying, hey, keep your, the entirety of your Christian faith, never share the gospel. He's clear on the need to spread the gospel throughout the entire letter. In this context, if you have freedom, right? No moral scruples over an act of, uh, of faith or of freedom, great. Your house is your own space. Get together with other like-minded believers. Enjoy them there, but don't run roughshod over your brother. Now, before we move on here, this point I've made on trying to help, right? Trying to disciple younger, uh, weaker folks in their faith. Uh, how do you think it happened for Paul and for Peter? Right? Somewhere along the way, they began to understand the implications of what it meant when Christ fulfilled the law and everything became clean so far as kosher laws are concerned. Right? There was conversation. There had to have been. Right? There was fellowship. There was searching out the scriptures. So when we have these differences, there is a place, right? And we are called to help one another to grow in our faith, right? To gently unpack the truth together, right? To be open, if you're on the weaker side of this discussion, to be open to the instruction and the scripture of folks who have gone before, right? So we are not absolutely beholden, right? To never speak the truth to someone in love, right? We use the spirits or we rely on the spirit to make this sort of decision. When is it okay, right, to enjoy the freedom? And when do I have the obligation to help and to serve? Does that make sense? Paul, right, just to drive this home a little bit, he was so bold as to tell people, hey, just imitate me because I imitate Jesus and you'll be okay. I probably wouldn't make that statement. Yeah, but you get the point. When he calls people, hey, imitate me, Paul's eating a hot dog, right? He, he's gotten over the issue, right? He has come to the fullness of understanding how much grace and freedom there is in Christ. And yet he says, I'll be all things to all people for the sake of Christ, right? So you see that modeled in his life. Now, for the weaker brother, Paul accepts this conviction about food and says, okay, if this really is a conviction you have that you can't do it before the Lord... That's fine, right, so long as it comes from or it's held in good faith. And he says that at the end of the passage, that whatever doesn't come from faith is sin. He's putting the younger brother, the weaker brother or sister on notice. Sometimes these convictions are held because we kind of like them. Like, oh, no, no, I don't eat that, right? And I want to make sure that people know that I don't eat that. There can be a tendency in our human hearts to have a conviction that I'm sort of noisy about, right? To give an elbow, to one up, maybe to try and manipulate or to control, that's human nature, right? We all have that in us. We have that capability within us to one up and to compete and to exalt ourselves. And Paul says, your conviction is fine so long as it comes from faith. If your conviction comes from anything else, guess what? Sin. And so do you begin to get a flavor for just the assumption that Paul has of the church that the weaker brother, weaker brother is the one who can't eat meat before the Lord or can't eat pork because he's acting from faith. The stronger brother understands his duty to the weaker. Hey, I want to help you grow. Do you see how high the bar is that Paul 
assumes is true of the church for dealing with differences. The things that I get annoyed about, the differences that I've had, the disagreements I have with people, when I hold them up to sort of this level, right, that Paul is saying, this is the kind of difference, this is the way that we interact, it's such a high bar. Such a high bar. How many of us hold convictions that we would say in good faith, yeah, it's the same as the weaker brother? It's the same thing. If so, great. But this is where the Spirit and the Scriptures cause us to check our motives, right? What is it in me that says, no, 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 this is the way it's going to be? Or, no, nah, that guy's just wrong. I'm not going to listen to that, right? You, you can see where scorn or where selfishness or where assertiveness, these things creep in. Those motives are not the ones that Paul has in mind here. The only kind of acceptable conviction before the Lord is one that's grounded in faith and in reverence. Jeremiah, uh, there's a passage there where he's addressing the tribe of Judah in the context of all the blessings that God's given and he sees their sinful behavior and he says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? We've got a whole mix of motives when we interact and we have conflict with one another. Christians, right? We still deal with those struggles as the Spirit refines us. Paul uses different language, but he says in chapter three, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, that's all of us, nobody's exempt from this, are all under the power of sin. And as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one, right? We are not above having selfish motives wrapped up in doctrinal disagreements, to say nothing of just disagreements in general. And coming to that place, just, Lord, that could be me. Right? I could be hung up here just because I want to be right. right? That's, that's the application here, to test the motives under the searching of the Spirit and his scriptures. Right? Why do I have the disagreement that I have? So let me recap. In these matters of conscience, and again, we're not talking about clear sin or clear virtue, but we're talking matters of doctrinal differences where it comes down to conscience. The strong have a higher calling to love and serve their brothers and sisters than they do their own personal freedoms. But they're both true. They're not on equal terms. Brotherly love trumps your personal freedom, Paul says. Right? And we've got to get to the bottom of those motives. And that brings us to the bigger picture. So now here, Paul shifts a little bit and he broadens the scope of what he's saying in verse 17. It says, the kingdom of God really isn't about eating and drinking. If you look at it there, if you have your Bibles or your phone, what, what does he say it's about? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about food, ultimately. So let's look into that a little bit here. First, notice whose kingdom we're talking about here. It doesn't belong to the weak or the strong. It doesn't belong to you or me. It's the kingdom of God. Right? We may be servants in the kingdom, even adopted children by his grace called into the kingdom, but it's not ours. It's not ours. Right? We don't sit on his throne. And the kingdom's qualities, right, these things, 
righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, they transcend differences around personal freedoms, matters of conscience, matters of conviction, right? Those things are not unimportant because Paul spends time addressing them, affirming them. How, how do we work them out? But he says, ultimately, the kingdom of God is bigger than that. And so when I say transcend, it comes ahead, it comes behind, it comes on every side. We're called to righteousness and to peace and to joy. Right, there's two ways to think about this. And in some of the reading and the research, you see differences of opinion. I think they both fit here. We use the term vertical and horizontal, right? So our relationship with God is the vertical as a believer. Those of us that have come to Christ, right, he covers us with his righteousness, we come broken, sinful, needy. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. That's why we have the peace, right? You see the relationship between the righteousness of God and the peace that we enjoy with him? Right? That we are not his enemies, that we are not under condemnation anymore. And the deeper that that truth goes as we grow in the Lord over decades, over years, whole lifetime, we come to appreciate that a little bit more. Right, those of you that have walked this path longer than I have, your thankfulness and your joy, I have to believe it's deeper now than it used to be. Right? God gives the righteousness. It creates the peace. And as those things seek in, joy develops. Joy develops because of our relationship with him. You remember, this is sidebar, you remember what Jesus said to the disciples on the night before he was crucified? Uh, he said, I'm telling you these things that my joy may be complete in you. He knew crucifixion was coming and was joyful. Right? That's part of the kingdom of God. Righteousness leading to peace and those two things form joy. Vertically. Now, if that's true of us vertically because of the, the, the Holy Spirit within us, well, Certainly, it's got implications for how we live with each other, right, on the horizontal plane. We act rightly with one another, honorably, truthfully, deferentially, lovingly, right? We act righteously. If we do that, it stands to reason that peace will result in those relationships, doesn't it? And if we act rightly and we have peace with one another, and by the Lord's help, there's a miracle. We like each other. We love each other, right? There's joy that begins to come in to that fellowship and to those people. That's the kingdom quality that Paul wants us to focus on in this passage and in everything else. Righteousness leading to peace, leading to joy, because it comes vertically and it's shared horizontally. And as a sidebar, joy is always better when it's shared if you think about your favorite movie, your favorite food, beautiful sunrise, whatever it is that you have joy over, the first thing you want to do is, wow, look at that, right? Look at that. Joy is designed to be collective. So in verses 18 and 19, Paul commends people, right, whose freedoms and convictions are formed in light of God's kingdom qualities, Right, the conviction isn't formed just in a vacuum to say, hey, I've got, my, I've got my argument ready, and as soon as the issue presents itself, I'm just gonna lay it on somebody. They're gonna have no comeback for that. No, no, no. 
right? He commends the one whose convictions, whose freedoms, whose behavior is formed, right? Through those kingdom qualities by the work of the spirit. And he says, that individual is commendable before God and approved by man. And when you, when you work with these kinds of people, right? When you have some experience with them, it's kind of obvious, Wow, that was refreshing. It wasn't sort of just the smackdown that we come to expect in other circumstances. And I'm almost glad he's not here right now. He might be up in uh, up in Broken Bow, but uh, some of you know Mike Talley. Um, I've been on a couple of mission trips with him, and there are folks coming from all sorts of different churches, and we meet up, different doctrinal backgrounds for sure. And I've seen Mike on the mission field gently correct doctrinal error within the missions team. And those people keep coming back. (laughs) They've been there for the second year and the third year. And the reason that we're working together, it's to advance the kingdom, right? That's Mike's call and his conviction. And you see him do it that way. That's what he cares about. Right? Our freedoms and our convictions and our love for each other are designed ultimately to make God look good, right? So as much as we enjoy the righteousness and the peace and the joy with one another, it doesn't stop there. Uh, Paul talks very briefly, he's got a phrase in this passage where he says, don't destroy the work of God. And that begs the question, well, what's the work of God? And then he expands on this just a few verses later in the first part of chapter 15, where he says, I'm bringing Jews and Gentiles together to make a church that glorifies Christ and God looks good, right? And you and I are small pieces of that by God's grace. We're thankful to be there. That's what it's about. That's the work of God. And so when we divide, right, when we add friction, when we break, when we do things that are counterproductive in our fleshly tendency and folks separate, you are damaging the reputation of God to an unbelieving world. That's heavy, is it not? Right, for those of us that have received his grace and we want to be part of his mission, you know, may it be our goal, may it be our call to work with one another in love and in deference and in patience, building each other up, Paul says, right, edifying the church, because the call is so much bigger than you or me. And however right our, our convictions are, right? They're, they're good and true and right convictions. But we need the bigger picture about what the nature of God's kingdom is and the fact that he is building and receiving glory for himself. That ought to be a guard over our mouths. That ought to give us pause before we sort of launch into the next disagreement aggressively or unconstructively. The disagreements are healthy and right. We understand that that happens in the light of Scripture. But boy, the way you do it is critically important because the glory and the reputation of God is at stake to an unbelieving world. So where does that leave us? Let me offer a few areas here of application. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that tempering convictions, tempering preferences and views and opinions is hard. Like if you think about the last disagreement you had with somebody at church, it, 
it's just sort of annoying. Like, what are, what, what are they thinking? That, that doesn't make any sense at all, right? It's hard to defer. It's hard to give grace to one another. And so, practically speaking, right, what I have found, and I've done this more than once, uh, is I will spend time in Philippians 2. Again, another letter written by Paul. Some really phenomenal theology in this. He says, look at Jesus, the high king of heaven before he stepped into earth. Do you think his opinions were the right ones? Probably. Do you think he was free to pursue his own convictions and his own desires? Yeah. Was he even more entitled to those things than you and I are to our preferences and freedoms? Yeah. Scripture says that while he was like God and was God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, and he took on the form of a servant, even to the point of death. And so you have clearly here an understanding of who Christ is, his rightness, his convictions, absolutely unassailable, unimpeachable, right in every way. And he says, I'm going to set that aside. And then when he condescended, right, we're almost to the Advent season, another month, when Christ took on flesh as a baby, do you think his deference was a little more difficult, a little trickier than ours, right, just getting along with one another? Yeah. Right? So the magnitude of the rights that he set aside and the love and the grace that he displayed to us through the incarnation, right? There is nothing clearer in my mind, right, than that sort of model, right, than who Christ is and how he does this. It's not just an instruction or a teaching. It's who he is. Right. So as I begin to internalize that, right, in prayer and in meditation, I think about the rightness of his cause, the depth of his condescension and his deference to me. Well, then the friction I've got with somebody else, right, the pressure comes out of that a little bit. Still there. Still have a disagreement. I still think they're wrong. But boy, it finds its proper perspective, doesn't it? Right? When, he let, when we let the Lord and the Spirit change the way we think and frame the affections of our heart. Right? Start there with a little bit of meditation and just think about the gulf that Christ stepped across for us and let the Spirit frame your heart right, as you work through your own differences. But we still have practical differences. Right? We still have doctrinal differences. And so how do we work through those? when we get into this sort of discipleship mode? How do we actually function and work through the differences that the weaker and the strong may have? Um, as I thought about this, it would be difficult, right, to put every difference we might possibly have and then give you the answer to all of them. It would take a while, right? We've probably got a few. Um, but there is, you guys may have heard, as a practical level, um, this concept of tiers, first tier, second tier, third tier differences within the church, Again, I'm going to reiterate that. We're talking about like-minded folks banded together in a local church to grow in Christ. We still have our differences, so how do we assess it? So first tier disagreement, something concerning the gospel and the person of Christ. 
right? We're not gonna yield on that. We're not gonna be deferential on that. We're gonna explain the truth and love with clear conviction, with no ambiguity, right? That Christ is the son of God, that there is no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved, it's Christ. Right, Paul identified that kind of difference in Galatians. You remember when he writes the letter, there were people perverting the gospel of Christ and he said, let them be eternally condemned, anathema. Let them go to hell. Those were his words, right? Not out of spite, but because the sanctity of Christ was at stake. That's a first tier issue. And we'll hold out the truth unapologetically for that. Second tier issue, right? Within the church, I think these go to areas where we just can't function well without resolving differences. And there may be several, but the two that come to my mind are around uh, the ordinances. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? There are differences on how churches approach this issue. If you think about baptism in particular, uh, we're of the conviction, we understand scripture to lay out a pattern in the New Testament that the truth is preached, Repentance and faith come, salvation occurs, and then the first act of obedience for the believer is to be baptized. That's the model that you see several times all throughout the New Testament. And so for someone who would come and say, hey, would you baptize my baby? No, we won't, right? We would explain why, right, what we understand Scripture to be. But functionally, in this church, Right, we commit parents and children to the Lord. We will dedicate them. We will commit ourselves to service and to discipleship together. But we, we do have a conviction, and therefore we're going to organize and run the church around that conviction of baptism. And you can't do both. Right? You're either going to baptize babies or you're not. Right? And so the church needs to function, and so you've got to resolve that difference. And so a difference at that level, it's not a gospel issue, but it will impact how the church functions. I have some very good friends of mine that um, no doubts whatsoever about their, their faith, but we would differ, we do differ on how and when to baptize children, right? And so those will lead people to fellowship in different churches, right, at that level, second tier. Third tier, things that don't involve sin, but it's just not clear in Scripture. And this is primarily what Justin was addressing the first part, what Paul's addressing in the first part of chapter 14, where we just don't know, right? But we are called to kingdom qualities, right? To the righteousness and the peace and the joy of the spirit to pervade how we navigate those differences. And we just agree to disagree. It's fine. We can talk about it, move on. Couple conversations I've had with folks that I think fall into that third category, you know, when is Christ coming back? I don't know. Right? You don't either. <laughs> but somehow we still disagree. I'm like, that's weird. Neither of us knows, but we're still going to disagree. Okay. Um, we, we agree on the fact Christ is returning, for sure. There's a le real, literal, physical return that we long for and that we agree on and that we work for. But I don't know when. I don't know how exactly, but it's coming. That's third tier. Another one that I've had conversations with folks um, is the idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That, that's one that we can just hot and bothered, right? How does God pick? What does man decide? Right. I don't know, right? But scripture is unapologetic on both points. God is sovereign over salvation, 
First Peter talks, it's all over scripture. I'm not even gonna get into the details. God is sovereign over salvation. And yet in the passage I quoted earlier, when Jesus said, blessed is the man who takes my teaching to heart and builds his house on the rock, Jesus is holding the individual accountable for how he responds to the gospel. Acts 27, this is one of the ones I like the most. Paul's on the boat, he's chained, he's a prisoner, and they're going somewhere. There's a huge storm. People are worried they're gonna die. And he says, don't worry, an angel of the Lord appeared to me and said, we're not gonna die. Like six verses later, there's a few folks about to get off the boat into the lifeboat. And Paul says, well, don't get off the boat, you're gonna die if you get into the lifeboat. Like, Paul, you just said the Lord told you we're not gonna die. Like, yeah, and don't get into the lifeboat because you're gonna die. Right, so how do we reconcile that? No idea, right? We can disagree on how those things fit together. I've got theories, but they're just theories. But we will hold out the truth to one another that God is sovereign and that you and I are responsible to respond to God's sovereign truth. So I offer up those three tiers as a framework because as we begin to pray and think about right under the Spirit's influence, how do we navigate these doctrinal differences? When my foremost goal is supporting the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom, that's going to shape and to temper how it is I engage with you on differences. That's Paul's model. That's his call. You know, we're all very much at different places in our Christian walks. Some are growing faster, some have grown longer, right? We're at different places. Romans 14 calls us to resolve differences in a way that glorifies God. And by his spirit and by his grace, we have his word and we have his power. We have his enablement to do so. Right? We're not left without the means to obey the call. But it will boil down to our willingness to receive it, right? to humble ourselves and to let him work in our hearts and to bear with one another, right, in love and in charity. But that's an encouraging thought, right, to be part of his work as that process builds and his kingdom goes forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are uh, forever thankful that you have redeemed us, that you have made us your own, that you have called us to be your disciples, and that you even use the word friend, to describe our relationship to you. Lord, we confess the fact that our our inclinations, our fleshly inclinations are to insist on our own way. Lord, we disguise it a little bit better than when we were three or four, but we still have that tendency to insist on our own way. But Lord Jesus, you yielded yourself to the Father. You said those Words, not my will, but yours be done. May that become true of us. May our hearts yield to the work of your spirit and your truth. May we be renewed through the transforming of our mind. May we love each other and serve each other and teach each other well. Lord, for our good, how oh, but God, for your glory. We commit that to you, Lord. It's in Christ's name, amen.